All right, so 1 Peter chapter 5. Today we're going to be um, finishing up. We're going to be in verses 10 to 14. And I know that I've been threatening to finish 1 Peter for a few weeks now, but today we're really going to do it, okay? Um, And last week, what we looked at was the harsh present. That was the title of last week's message, a harsh present. Because what we looked at was the present circumstances of life and the fact that there's a real devil. Last week, we, we talked a bit about the spiritual realm and talked about the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, and we talked about the devil. And when we looked through scripture and we saw some of the things that we learned about the devil and about what's going on in that. And, and that there's this devil, as Peter told us last week, there's a real devil who wants to devour us. And, and we looked at that. But we also saw Peter teach us, yes, there's a real devil, but we can stand firm in our faith and resist him and resist that, that attack that comes our way. But we know, and as we've learned all through 1 Peter, we know that life is unstable. And sometimes life feels like, man, we are under attack and things are falling apart and things are hard to keep it together. And there's a lot of suffering that comes our way and struggle that comes our way. Life beats you up if you live very long. That's how it works. And I told you that even though life can sometimes be rocky and unstable, a stable life is built on faith. That's what we learn in in 1 Peter. That's what we learn all through the Bible, actually, that our faith gives us something that is stable beyond the circumstances of this life. And, and it's not just uh, this idea of faith, it's what faith is rooted in. Our Father in heaven who is beyond this life. And it's a faith in what God has done, what God is doing, and what he will do. And what will you find out in life is, once you get to that spot where you realize, ooh, life's not turning out like I expected it to turn out. Things aren't going the way I planned them to go. I didn't expect to hear that about my health. I didn't expect that to happen financially. I didn't expect to do this or that and experience these things differently. I didn't know this was gonna happen. And and that happens to all of us at different places in our lives and in different ways. And when that happens, we start looking for things around us to stabilize ourselves. We start saying, whoa, I gotta get something to hold on to. (laughs) What, What do I need to find? What can I do? And we do it different ways. We all have different coping mechanisms. In fact, what I've found in my life is I even have done, I've had like different seasons of life where I lean on different things trying to get me through, trying to find some balance in life. For some people, they, they chase whatever the next big thing is and they use pleasure and adventure um, or thrill seeking to try to find meaning in life. That was more me, like the younger me right? Like as long as I got the next thing to try, the next thing to do, okay, well, that'll get me through. It'll give me something to focus on, something to look at. Try this, try that, do this, do that. Sometimes that's the way it is. Others go the opposite route. They're like, no, that's the last thing I want. I don't want something that's unstable and wild out there. I want consistency and I want, I want it just to be the same way all the time. So they hide themselves in their routines, and their task lists, and their, I wanna make things as safe as possible and as, as consistent as possible. I'm gonna work hard. I'm gonna use sheer willpower to hold things together. 
right? But what you find out even then is that no matter which end of that you go to, none of it lasts and covers all, all things. None of it works. It might work for a little while. It might work in certain places, but a lot of times it, it just won't, it won't do it. And it all comes, they come short at some point. But faith, what scripture tells us is, faith in God is different than that. Because when our faith is rooted in Jesus, we're rooted and grounded and anchored in someone that doesn't come up short. All those other fix-it things in our lives will come up short, but he doesn't. And in every season of your life, whether you're young or old or in between, whether you're healthy or sick, whether things are great in your relationships or things are rocky in your relationships, he is faithful and he is solid. He is above and before all things. He's outside of all the circumstances of our lives. That's what it tells us in Colossians 1, 15 to 17. It'll be on the screen here for you. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. What Peter told us at the end of this book is he says, look, things are gonna be rough and, and I'm not gonna sugarcoat it for you. I'm gonna tell you there's a devil and he's real and he's looking to destroy you. But what I'm also gonna tell you is that there's a God who is above all those things and beyond all those things. And he has a plan and he is holding things together because he's the one who created all this in the first place. And even if you feel like life is spinning out of control, he is in control of it. And so things like the existence of Satan, that doesn't worry us. The harsh present reality doesn't discourage us. And Peter teaches us that instability and vulnerability of life doesn't have to discourage us, which is what it usually does when we realize something's not the way we want it to be in our lives. But it doesn't have to be that way because we know that God's at work. And when we have faith that he's doing what he needs to do and that he can finish what he started, it strengthens us, even in the hardest places of life. And instead of dwelling on the harsh suffering at present, and it's real and it's there, we can have a hopeful future. And that's the, the title of this message today, A Hopeful Future. And let's begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Here's what he says. And remember, this is his, he's wrapping up the entire book. He's been talking a lot about suffering. But here's what he says in verse 10. He says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, let's go through that verse a little bit. The first thing we have to take a look at is the time frame of our suffering. Because what does he say here? He says, look, after you suffered a little while, all right, I don't care how little that little while is, it's not what we want it to be. <laughs> None of us want to suffer. None of us choose it. None of us say, that sounds wonderful. I can't wait till my business collapses and I have to figure out what to do next. 
Nobody has that feeling. Nobody says, oh yeah, great. I went to the doctor and he said everything's terrible. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what we sign up for. And even though he says, yeah, after you've suffered a little while, it, 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 it could end up being your entire lifetime. And that's what the Bible says. If somebody told you, hey, sign up for Christianity because the Bible says that when you become a Christian, you'll never suffer again, they lied. If that's what they told you, that's not the way it is. A lot of people who have devoted themselves, their entire lives to the Lord, have suffered and struggled. You, you read this book much and you start paying attention to the characters in here over and over and over. Even God's favorites in this book are loaded with suffering. All right, you go back and you look at the life of Abraham or Moses or David, Joseph, Peter, James, John, the rest of the 12, even Jesus himself suffered and struggled. But suffering has a purpose. It's doing a work in our lives. Paul, the apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, made the, the very same statement that Peter makes here, just worded it a little differently in 2 Corinthians chapter four. Here's what he says about it. He says, this light momentary affliction, that's our suffering, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's, he's contrasting a light suffering with a heavy weight of glory. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things of faith. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they're, they're moving from place to place. They're not stable. They're not staying still. But the things that are unseen are eternal. There's a, a Bible commentator that I, I like the way he described this. Um, and this is a quote from him. What he said is, what you find through 1 Peter is that present sufferings are intimately connected to eternal glory. We want to sometimes separate those things in our minds. And we say, look, I like the glory thing. That sounds great. The weight of God, the glory of God. I want to experience God every morning when I wake up and the sun is shining through my window and I pop out of bed with a healthy body and God gives me a great big hug and says, you go get him, tiger. You know, we like that idea. Ooh, that sounds good. Me and God, we walk through our day and anytime I come up to something I can't figure out, I just say, hey God, what do you think? And God gives me this incredible insight and we're like, yeah. And we throw that out there and everybody's impressed and everybody's happy and we go through our lives that way. That sounds wonderful. That sounds glorious. Sign us up, right? But what he's saying here is, no, actually, this glory that we're after, this, this relationship and, and this understanding of God and this experience of God and all that, it's actually intimately tied to suffering. This suffering that comes through our lives is part of what makes us grow. It's part of what reveals our weaknesses. It's part of what shows us the fact that we actually need a savior, these are the things that happen in our lives that we hate and we want to push off and we want to avoid, but they're also things that, that directly impact us that we have to understand there is a purpose in it. And it might not seem like our sufferings have a purpose, but they do. And let me just tell you, God's not punishing you when you suffer in this life. He's not requiring payment for your sins. Jesus already did that. He took care of all that stuff. 
Sometimes we feel that way. Something bad happens to us and we're like, oh man, what did I do? Oh yeah, I remember back in third grade, I stole that from that kid across the street. You know, that's what God's, he's coming back to get me. Karma, right? What goes around comes around. That's what's happening. No, that's not what's happening. Jesus took our punishment and he paid our debts in full. God's allowing our suffering to shape us and prepare us for glory. To shape us and prepare us for glory. And what is that glory? Okay, he says, after a while, you suffered a while, the God of the grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Glory is an important word in the Bible. In fact, in my Bible, on my, uh, the digital Bible that I have, I, in this Bible, this Bible is not as old as some of my other Bibles, but even some of my old paper Bibles, I used to underline the word glory every time I found it anywhere in the Bible. It's such an important part of, of who God is and understanding God, this, this glory thing. And we have to understand a little bit about it. What is glory? What's the glory of God? In the Old Testament, the, the word glory carries an element of, of weightiness to it. All right, when they say something is glorious, it's like something that's heavy, something that's solid, that's substantial, that doesn't move. There's, there's a weight involved and a worth. It has value and splendor. And when it's visibly seen, the glory of God, when it's visibly, visibly seen in the Old Testament, it usually, it's usually um, accompanied by a bright, blinding fire. All right? For instance, when you go back to the Old Testament, and you probably know this story about Moses when he's in the desert and God appears in the burning bush. It's the glory of God in this bush. And it's this blinding, it's like fire, but it's not burning the bush. So it's not really fire, it's just bright. It's them trying to describe what happens here. As the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, there was a pillar of fire that they could see. In the temple, there's, there's the, these fires that are meant to represent the presence of God, the glory of God. It's this 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 beauty, this unapproachable flame. In the New Testament, it's further understood to represent God's character and his nature. And when they talk about the glory of God, the splendor of God, that's what they're trying to say. He's, he's, he's worthy of honor and praise. God is glorious. His glory is what causes us to want to worship. Worship is when we come in and we say, oh, I, I've got a glimpse of God and wow, God's glorious. I need to praise him for that. I need to lift his name up on high. It's because we're experiencing glory, okay? And Jesus is the human manifestation of God's glory. And what we're called to, what Peter's referring to here is he, we're called to experience the glory of God forever, when you go through the, the New Testament toward the end there and it, there's depictions of, of what heaven is gonna be like, in Revelation, one of the things that it talks about is there's no need for a son anymore. And there, the reason there's no need for a son in this new creation is that the glory of God lights it all up. It's glory that we're gonna experience all the time. I mean, already we step out into the sun and you're like, wow, it's bright, it's glorious. But in heaven, in eternity, the glory that we're going to experience is, is more glorious than that because it's God himself. He will be the one lighting everything up. 
And that's what he says that we can look towards. Even though we've got this suffering that we're going to suffer a little while, we have to be reminded that we're called to eternal glory. That is where we are headed. That's where we're going. We have a hopeful future. We're people with a hopeful future. And one day, God's going to make all things right. Amen. That's important to be thankful for. Because there's a lot of things that aren't right in this world and in this life. But God's going to make it all right. And Peter had seen little glimpses of that. And that's what he's calling us towards. He's saying, lean into this thing that that he's going to do for us. That's the God we hope in, this glorious God. That's the God we love and we serve. That's the future that our faith is rooted in. Okay, when he says, look, hold on to the, your, your faith to stand, with, stand firm in all the things that are going to hit you in life, we're holding on to a faith in this glorious God. And that is, that's heaven, a place that's filled with God's glory where nothing will ever diminish it or detract from it. Think of it this way. Have you ever experienced something in your life where you're like, I could just stay here forever? Something that's just so right and so good. It might be a holiday when you're with family around and everybody's getting along for the first time ever and you're, you know, eating good food and just enjoying the day and you're like, this is just glorious. Like, let's just keep life like this. Aren't those days great? And you experience it and you're like, I don't even want this to end. It's so wonderful. Or you might be someplace or do something where you're just like, this is wonderful. That's our future. It's going to be an endless stream of those sorts of things. Where, and it won't end. Because it will be purely glorious. That's a beautiful thing to have in our minds. Our future is glorious. But here's the thing. And this is what Peter tells us here in this passage. Our future, heaven, is glorious. That's great, but we still live on an earth where things aren't yet glorious. And some of the suffering that we experience and the things that we endure mask what it is that we're going to see in the future. But what Peter says is, he says, yes, our future is glorious, but we also have hope in the near future. And God is at work in our lives now. You got to know that. If you're a Christian here today, God is at work in your life. Now, the question that you immediately ask yourself is the question that I immediately ask myself if somebody said the same thing to me. I'm like, well, is he really working in my life? Is that really what's happening in me? Yeah, I'm a Christian, but do I see it? Can I put my finger on it? Does it feel that way to you? Peter was confident that God would do it, but that doesn't mean it's always something that we can easily see. And if we don't see his hand at work in our lives, we don't hear his voice, we don't recognize his provision and guidance, it's really easy for our relationship with God to grow distant. And, and that may be where some of you find yourselves today. You might be like, yeah, I believe in God, but man, I don't feel like he's at work in my life. I don't know what's, what's happening with this. Well, here's what we have to remember. God is a person. Not only is he glorious and out there and above and beyond all things, like we read in Colossians, he's also a person. And he has a personal 
relationship with people. He's not just this disconnected cosmic being floating out in space somewhere. He's a person. Now, what we have to understand about that is being a person in in, in personal relationships, we have to cultivate relationships and we have to maintain relationships. Think of it this way. You might have an old friend from some other season of your life. You know, maybe it was somebody that you went to school with way back when or a a coworker that you had at an old job or something. And and you think about them and you're like, yeah, I kind of remember that person. You know, we haven't been in touch in a really long time and I've maybe kind of lost track of them and they lost track of me. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a relationship and, but I don't really hear from them anymore. Well, it's, it's kind of easy for us to say that, but you have to also ask yourself the flip question, which is, yeah, but do they hear from me anymore? You know, sometimes we're like, ah, that's person, they just, whatever, they moved out of my life, it's, it's on them. Yeah, but we know that's not how relationships work, right? Relationships are two-way streets. It requires you reaching out as well as them reaching out. And that's one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves if you feel um, today that God may not be at work in your life. You gotta ask yourself that question. Okay, you know, God fell silent, but you have to say, or did I fall silent to God? Am I talking to him and he's still not talking back to me? Or did he stop talking to me and I stopped talking to him and I don't know which, who stopped talking first, but all I know is God's just somewhere. Ask yourself, what is your relationship with God like right now? When was the last time you really talked to him? When was the last time you felt his presence or saw evidence of his work in your life? And here's, here's one of the things that you have to recognize. When that relationship with God is diminished. When we stop talking to him, stop hearing from him, you know what we do? We go right back to all those things that aren't around our faith to try to cope. That's when the old patterns come back. The old way of doing things start sneaking back into your mind. That's when the old things that we used to lean on to try to give us stability in life like we talked about, that's when those things start sounding good again. Why? Because what's happened is the thing that we know that we're supposed to be building our lives on, our faith, our relationship with God, when that weakens, it's like, well, I gotta find something. Life's wobbly. Life's got a lot thrown at me. I gotta, I gotta brace myself somehow. Wow, that used to work really well. Maybe I'll go back and try that again. That's not what we're, we're towards. Now, every relationship has an ebb and a flow. There's some times where things are feeling great and sometimes that they're not. And, and not many people can sustain passion in relationships without ever experiencing a lull. That's just how humans are. But we learn to persevere in the relationships that really matter to us. You keep it going. And we know from what the Bible tells us is God is wanting that relationship with you. He, he doesn't have a problem keeping his passion up. We're the ones with the passion problem when it comes to God. And he wants to work deep things in your life. And that's what Peter is reminding us of here. He says, look, yes, there's gonna be some period of time, whether it's your whole life or not, in light of eternity, even your whole life of 80 to 100 years, that's actually pretty small when you start comparing eternity to it. That's a small number. But but no matter what, in that you have to know that God is wanting to do something in your life. He wants to work in your life. He wants to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. 
And that's what he starts doing as he, he breaks these things down. I want us to look at those four words that he says there. He says he's gonna restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. The first word is restore. What comes to mind when you think about restoring something? For me, it usually means like an old house or an old car or something, like a restoration project, something old. The, the definition is, is simply just to fix what's broken. That's what restoring is. It's fixing something that's broken. The Bible in another place in Matthew chapter four, um, when it's talking about fishermen, it uses this, this word, says that they're restoring their nets. They're mending their nets. They're fixing what's broken. The net was supposed to hold the fish when you put the net in. And if it breaks, well, it obviously is not doing its job anymore and the fish swim right out and they're not gonna be caught in the net. So what he's first saying here is he says, God wants to restore you. He wants to fix you. He wants to fix the brokenness in you. And all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, have brokenness in our lives. We're broken people. We're fallen people. But God wants to restore that and he will do it. I love how it describes it here too. It says that God himself will restore you. He could have sent like a a team of fix-it angels into life. I kind of like that idea, you know? I got a spiritual problem. You call up the fix-it angels and they like show up at your house in a restoration truck and they're like, all right, we got this, you know? Lay down, don't move. We got to do something. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. What we find is, he says, God himself, he loves you so much. He's like, no, 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 back up angels. I got this. This is the kid I love. I wanna work in you. I wanna restore you. And we all have different degrees of that brokenness that he wants to restore. And this has always been a cry of God's people. You go all the way back into the Old Testament into Psalm 80, there's a a recurring verse that happens in Psalm 80 three different times in verse three and verse seven and verse 19 of this psalm. And remember, the book of Psalms is a, a book of songs. And so it's like the chorus of the song here. And here's what it says. It's the cry of these people. They say, restore us. That's that word, restore us, fix us. We're broken, restore us, oh God. Let your face shine that we can be saved. That's the cry of our hearts and that's the cry of God's heart for you. I wanna restore you, I'm gonna do it. The second word he says there is is that he's gonna confirm us. What's that mean? When God says he's gonna confirm you, it means he's gonna validate your life in him. He wants you to know you're my child and I'm with you. You're with me. We're together. I wanna validate that because all of us can doubt our faith at times. That's part of this journey. I'm not the first one to ever think, do something stupid. And I'm like, oh my gosh, am I even a Christian? How did that come through my mind? Or worse, how did that come through my mind and then come out of my mouth? Or how did that, you know, how did I do what I did or say what I said or thought what I thought? How on earth? Oh God. Is it just me? It's just me. Okay, no, it's not just me. It's, it's some of us. All right, but God wants to say, no, no, no. You still got some brokenness. I'm still working in you. I'm not quite finished with you yet, but you're still mine and and you're still with me. And we know that, it tells us in the Bible, by the way that he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He says that he gives the Holy Spirit to those who have believed in him as a seal. It's a mark, a, a statement that says, yep, that one's mine. 
I'm marking that one as mine. And this is what it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, when that's what happened, when you heard the message, you believed in it, it says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What God is doing in each of you is sometimes a little bewildering. Sometimes when God's at work in our lives, we're like, I don't understand what God is doing. I don't understand how he's doing it. I don't understand how in the world he's ever gonna finish this. (laughs) But he's at work. And this, this is part of the process. And he's given you the Holy Spirit in your life to remind you that he is at work and that he has done it and that he will do it. All right, so he's gonna restore you. He's gonna confirm you. Then he's gonna strengthen you. Now, we don't need a big description of what it means to be strong, to be strengthened. We know what that word means. The flip side of that's happening too. Not only is he making us stronger, he's erasing weakness. And for those of you who are perfectionists, that you're like, just get rid of my weaknesses. Don't care where they're at or how they are, just get rid of them. I want everything strong. That's what God's doing in you. That's what he's working in you. We are being perfected. He knows that we're weak. In in Psalm 103, I didn't put this one in, but um, the Bible tells us that God knows our frame. He knows that we're just dust. Okay, he knows the dirt that he used to fashion us into these people. He knows how fragile and how weak we are. He knows this stuff, but he wants to strengthen us. All right, so he's gonna, he, he, he's, he's gonna begin by restoring us. He's gonna confirm us. He's gonna strengthen us. And then finally, it says, he will establish us. Now, we already talked about the fact that he is going to permanently place us in a heavenly kingdom. But he's also going to establish us in this life. This wraps all the way back to how do you have a stable life with all the craziness that happens in this world? He's gonna establish faith in you. He's gonna anchor you in this life. What Jesus, the way Jesus described this to people, uh, you can go into Matthew chapter seven. Let's let's actually do that. If you've got your Bible, turn over with me to Matthew chapter seven, verse 24 to 27. I, I don't have this one on the screen for you, but... I wanna read it to you today. Matthew 7, 24 to 27, here's here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. If you were a kid who went to Sunday school, you probably heard this story. There's songs that go along with it. I'm not gonna make you sing it right now. But the wise man builds his house upon the rock, okay? And then he says, and the rain fell and the floods came. That's the suffering and struggle of life. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. What God is doing in your life is he's helping you build your life upon the rock, the foundation. He's building your faith. 
so that you can withstand the struggle of life. And it's not always an easy construction process. Sometimes there's jackhammers and nail guns involved, okay? It doesn't always feel good. It's sometimes noisy and painful and takes a lot longer than you want it to. If anybody's ever done a remodel at their house, you've experienced these things. But God's at work to establish you. And that is the experience that Peter went through. You know, um, at the beginning of this study, we, we looked at a, a, a big view of Peter's life. And if you weren't around to hear that, you can go back to the podcast and listen to it. And the only reason I would encourage you to do that is because when we finish 1 Peter, we're going to go on and jump into 2 Peter. And it's good to know Peter uh, before we, we learn his letters. And, and, and one of the things that you may remember from that is Peter went through the roughest time of his life when he denied Jesus. Remember, Peter was the apostle who when Jesus said uh, on the last night of his life, he said, look, tonight, one of you is gonna betray me and I'm gonna go to my death. Peter was the one who stood up and said, you're not going without me. The rest of these losers might fall, but I'm gonna stay strong, Jesus. I'm gonna be right beside you to the end. Even if I have to give my life, I'm gonna do this. But then as the story goes on, we find out, yeah, he had that. He believed that in his heart. But when it got tough, he backed out. He denied Jesus. And when Jesus was in the courtyard of the high priest and they were being tried there, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus, tried to distance himself And sadly for Peter, the last time that he saw the eyes of Jesus looking at his eyes was when Peter was betraying him. He looked up and he saw Jesus and Jesus saw him and the rooster crowed and all that, remember? And from that point on, Peter didn't see Jesus again. Jesus went through the rest of the trial, went before Pilate and all that stuff, got beaten and dragged out and crucified and died. And Peter was carrying that. Peter knew I denied my Lord. I rejected everything that I said that I was gonna do. And can you imagine the guilt? I just said to him a few hours earlier, I'm gonna be with you to death and here I back out of it. And he was carrying that. But there's a really cool story in the end of the gospel of John in John chapter 21. And it's after Jesus, you know, resurrects and appears to the disciples. Peter's in that group. But up to this point, Jesus hasn't mentioned it to Peter. He shows up and everybody's excited, but Peter's still carrying that. That, oh, that unresolved thing of, "Ah, we haven't talked about this, Jesus. I denied you and I'm sorry. None of that conversation's happened yet. And what we find in, in John chapter 21 is Peter and some of the other disciples are on a boat fishing and Jesus appears on the beach and he's making a fire, and he invites the guys over to breakfast. And Peter jumps in the water and swims over, and they have breakfast together. But then we have this beautiful time where Jesus is speaking specifically to Peter. And if you remember that story, Peter had denied Jesus three times, it tells us in the gospel. Jesus then gives Peter the opportunity to reaffirm his love for him three times wiping out each one of those denials. And the first thing that Jesus says to Peter, he says there, he says, Peter, do you love me? 
And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, well, then I want you to tend my sheep. Take care of my people. The conversation goes on. He asks him again, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, yes, Lord, I, I, I love you. Then feed my lambs. And then the last one, again, uh, he asks him the third time, and Peter still hasn't registered the fact that I denied you three times, and now you're reinstating me three times. But the third time, again, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, Lord, you know all things. Yes, I love you. And then that's when he says, go, tend my sheep. What was Jesus doing with Peter? He was doing these four things. He was fixing what was broken by restoring him. He says, look, Peter, I know that you're carrying this guilt. I know you're broken in this way. I wanna restore you. He was confirming Peter. He was saying, yes, you really are mine. I know you denied me, but you're still mine. That's why I'm giving you this job to do. I'm telling you to go and take care of my kids. What does he, he continues to do through that. He strengthens him by removing his burdens. You know what that's like when you're carrying something around that you shouldn't be carrying around? and it just wipes you out, and it's the guilt of that just weighing on you. The last thing you feel is strong in that. You just feel the weakness of the whole thing. He removed his burdens. And finally, he established him by saying, look, yeah, you're my follower, and not just my follower, you're gonna be a leader that I wanna send out to the, the church that I'm gonna establish. So Peter experienced that, and Peter is, he, he experienced it and knew it in his soul, and he knew this isn't just for me. This isn't just because I was one of the 12 and I was Peter and I was always with Jesus. I'm so lucky, I'm much better than the rest of you. That's not what Peter, that wasn't his viewpoint. No, he says, this is what Jesus does. This is what he wants to do with you too. In fact, as we, we, uh, when we begin uh, 2 Peter, you'll see in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, here's what Peter even describes as he's talking to other Christians. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, here he is, the disciple Peter, the apostle Peter, Saint Peter, who says, your faith is equal to ours. You're standing on the same level ground that I'm standing on. Why? Because the ground that we all stand on is the ground that Christ puts us on. And he wants to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And once he's said that, then he goes on in verse 11, and we're almost done here. He says in verse 11, to him, to Jesus, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our hope, the hope that we have, the hope in him, our hope leads to praise. That's what Jesus does. Or that's, what, that's what Jesus receives and that's what we do. That's what Peter is saying here. He says, let him have dominion. That means let him have ruling authority over everything. The most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is found in Psalm 110.1, which says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Believers have always seen that as, yes, we're waiting for God to do what God's gonna do, which is he's gonna make all things right and put Jesus at the head of all things. Jesus with full dominion and rule and authority. So what does that tell us? And what, is, what do we learn from this? Our story doesn't end with suffering. It doesn't end with suffering. Our story ends with salvation. That's good news, guys. Hold on to that. Build your life on that. Be reminded of that. 
And then as he finishes here with a few closing remarks, it says in verse 12, it says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. So just a little teaching moment here for you. Silvanus is actually the, the full form of, uh, of the name Silas. So Silvanus is the formal name on the birth certificate or the driver's license, but everybody calls him Silas, okay? It's, it's like Robert and Bob, okay? Um, so Silas is, is this, this man, Silvanus. It's almost certainly the same Silas, if you recognize that name, um, who traveled with Paul in the book of Acts. Silas either wrote this letter down as, as Peter dictated it, or Silas delivered it. We're not sure. He says there, I've, you know, through this guy, Silas, I've written briefly to you, um, or maybe both. He, he may have been with Peter and Peter tells him and he writes it down and says, all right, Peter, you're locked up here in, in Rome and I'm gonna take this out to those churches. Um, Silas was a pillar in the early church and he pops up in, a, in many places in the New Testament. Then, then you might read in verse 13, you're like, she who's at Babylon, what? what's that all about? Okay, this is actually a reference to another church, um, the church at Babylon. Um, but what is Babylon? Babylon isn't the, the Old Testament place of Babylon where King Nebuchadnezzar was. It's actually a reference, a veiled reference to Rome. Okay, Babylon was a wicked place and they just kind of referred to Rome uh, in a derogatory way to say, I'm living in Babylon. And that, that was Rome. And that's where Peter was when he was writing this. Um, and then it says there, so the church at, at, at Rome uh, sends you greetings. So he's saying from church to church, I want to send you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Now, this isn't um, his flesh and blood son, most likely. This is, is probably John Mark, who would actually write the gospel of Mark, which is the gospel in Peter's perspective. So if you've wondered about that, that's where that crosses over there. And then our final verse, he says, and greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We are the family of God. We're together as the family of God. And the, the Christian life is a shared journey. That's how it works. It's not a, a solo expedition. And we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And guys, that is our heart and our hope for this church that this is a church family, that we truly love each other and are invested in each other's lives. That's what this whole reference is here. Um, um, this, this knowledge of the closeness in the family of God, the kiss of love was an expression of, of a brotherly love, all right? And as we stand firm in our faith, we remind each other of our hopeful future, we're gonna find peace. That's where, how he finishes, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Even in the struggle, even in the suffering, if we can hold tight to our faith, we will find peace. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your word here today. Thank you for letting us see this and understand it with our minds. And now, God, I just ask that you would allow us to understand it with our hearts. Lord, we can hear a message like this in the middle of our struggle and it's sometimes hard to apply. 
anytime we're trying to, to establish our faith even more, God, it's hard. But what we learn here is that it's a work that you're doing in our lives. And so Lord, today we open our lives to you and our hearts to you and our minds to you and our souls to you and say, God, we want to love you with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And we wanna learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. We wanna be those people that are full of faith. People that have a hope in the, the eternity to come, but also have hope in the here and now. We are Christians, are called to be people of hope. And life beats us up and sometimes we don't feel like we have hope and sometimes we feel hopeless and we need other people to lean on. And that's, that's part of our journey. But God, we pray that you would continue to lead us toward hope, that you would give us the peace that comes from knowing and following Christ. And today, God, as we wrap up this service and begin to just respond in a couple songs of worship, Lord, let us remember your glory. Let us see a glimpse of who you are and let that build our faith. We don't want this experience of a relationship with you just to be theoretical. We want to experience a relationship with you. We want your Holy Spirit to not only dwell within us, but to to bring us to a place where we're overflowing with the things of you. And so today, God, I pray that you would meet every person that is here in whatever way they need to be met. You know us in our inner beings. You know what we need. And I pray that today you would do a radical work in each one of our lives meet with us, be with us, fill us with praise as we see your glory and we hold on to you in faith. And Lord, make us people of hope. May we be known as a church that's full of hopeful people. And as we live lives out of that hope and out of that faith, may we bring glory and honor to you. As we gather today, but then scatter out into the neighborhoods around us, wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we go to school. Lord, we pray that we would be bringing the truth and the goodness of you to this world around us. We ask that you would use our church as a place that brings light into the dark world that we live in, a church that brings hope to the hopeless, that we can allow people to to meet you, meet with you and let you do the work that you do as you heal and you strengthen and you encourage. Bring many people to you for Jesus' sake. And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.